So Dave Ramsey probably doesn't need an introduction, but for anybody who's been living under a rock, his show, The Ramsey Show, is the second biggest radio talk show in America with over 1 billion downloads. He's written two New York Times bestsellers, has over 2.5 million subscribers across two YouTube channels, and owns over $600 million cash worth of real estate. Dave is actually somebody who I personally looked up to now for 10 years, and if you don't believe me, I literally have a cat named after him because I found the cat for free, and I have a life life-size cardboard cutout of him in my family room. Needless to say, Dave Ramsey is the king of all financial entertainment. Well, we got him for an exclusive one-hour-long episode here on the Iced Coffee Hour and couldn't be more excited to show you. So if you're a fan of this content and you want to see more, subscribe, because we have some pretty incredible stuff coming out in the near future. But first, we want to thank our sponsor, Wealthfront. With all that's going on in the market right now, investing can be seen as very risky. And it would be incredible if there was a guaranteed way to get a high-interest return on your money. Well, Thankfully, there is, and it's by using today's sponsor, Wealthfront. Wealthfront is a saving and investing app that can help you earn more in your money and start building wealth for your future. That's because the Wealthfront cash account gives everyone a 2% APY interest rate, which is 20 times what traditional banks pay. Wealthfront only takes a few minutes to sign up, and you could start earning 2% APY immediately. They've been a company that I've been personally using for a few years now, and at 2% interest, it's pretty much higher than almost every other option out there, so I would highly recommend them. And if you start now, you'll get a free $50 bonus with a $500 deposit. There are already nearly half a million people using Wealthfront to save more, earn more, and build long-term wealth, so why wait? So earn 2% in your cash today by visiting Wealthfront.com ICH. The link is down below in the description, or again, it's Wealthfront.com ICH. This no-brainer good news has been a paid endorsement by Wealthfront. Thank you so much, Wealthfront. Once again, link down below, and back, back to, to the, the podcast. podcast. I'm George Camel. And I'm not. I'm Dave Ramsey. And this is the Ice Coffee Hour. And so far, this podcast, Wild Guess, yeah. has made $260,000. You are officially our closest guest. Congratulations. Actually, good job. Usually we just say this, you know, if you're within, you know, a little bit. But yeah, $258,700. So you're $1,300 uh, off. If this was prices Right, I would have won the dishwasher. That's okay. $1, Bob. <laughs> $1, Bob. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this. And uh, Dave, the hospitality of everyone that I've met on your team is insane. Just how passionate everyone is, how much they really want to be here, how excited they are, how nice. It's like I am blown away when we drove down here and saw we were asking uh, your driver or your head of security, actually. I said, is this all Dave's? He's got the whole thing. And it's all paid for. It's all owned outright. And it, I'm like, does he sublease any of it? Surely there must be like other like medical buildings or office. No, I am blown away. Um, wild, insane. Now, for those unfamiliar, I bet most people are familiar with your story. Um, could you give us a bit of a background on what you do, your philosophies, and how you were able to to go from being bankrupt in your 20s to owning? Everything. It's incredible. I'm, I'm truly <laughs> owning good. everything. I've had a loss everything. for words here. Wow. Yeah, I like hanging out with Graham. Ideas. Now, we, uh, uh, like you said, we started with nothing. Mom and dad were in the real estate business. And so I know your background, of course. Uh, your parents weren't, mm -hmm. but you got into it at 18. I got my license when I turned three weeks after I turned 18 yep. and still got my license and uh, a thousand years later. And so, uh, I went and got my degree in real estate, came out, Sharon and I got married at 22 years old, 1982, and um, went through a couple jobs, and then I quickly started buying real estate. Nothing down in those days. It was a big deal. Before there was, um, before Chip and Joanna were born, you know, and so... <laughs> 
It's a long time ago. And I got rich. Uh, I had a million dollar net worth, made about 200, I think I made 250,000 bucks at uh, 24 years old. And that's 1984. Mm. So that's, that's like making 500,000 now, you know. So uh, it was for a kid from Antioch, Tennessee. I mean, where I came from, that's called rich. And so everything was going great, but I did a lot of 90 day notes because I was doing flips. A lot of short-term notes and uh our bank got the the largest bank i had a million two out with them got sold to another bank and outside of the state of tennessee and some guy looks down in another city and said hey there's a 24 year old kid owes us a million bucks this is scary uh let's let's limit this relationship which is banker talk for ruin his life and they called our notes uh another banker got word we were in trouble called another eight hundred thousand. so we had two million we had to come up with in 120 days and it's all in real estate. You can't get out of it that mm. fast. So it started a crash that uh, that I couldn't recover from. And uh, we spent the next two and a half years losing everything we owned, being sued and foreclosed on. And uh, finally, with a brand new baby and a toddler and our marriage hanging on by a thread, we filed bankruptcy in September of 88. And um, it was a, not a good ride. But we, uh, uh, we were new in our Christian faith baby Christians, and I started studying what the Bible says about money, which was just common sense, get out of debt, stay out of debt, live on less than you make, live on a budget, have a plan. Uh, And I started doing that stuff, and that evolved into people asking me, okay, how are you recovering from your bankruptcy? It seems like you're doing okay. And I'm like, well, we're doing okay. It wasn't fast. But um, uh, we finally sat down with some friends and helped them do a budget because they were in trouble. And then the pastor called from the church and said, hey, this guy's in foreclosure. Can you help him? I went, yeah, I used to buy foreclosures, and then I was one. So, yeah, I can probably help him. <laughs> so we sat down, did a uh, you know did a workout plan, a forbearance plan with that mortgage company for mm-hmm. him. And um, I started doing uh, forbearance plans for people that were behind on their mortgage, started helping people that were struggling. So they didn't have to file bankruptcy. They thought they would have to go into Chapter 13 or to save their house. And then that evolved and... Um, Start teaching a little Sunday school class, and there's about four people in there. And looked up, and there were 300 people in there. And it just, there was such a need. People were, uh, they gravitated to my story of stupidity, mm-hmm. uh, my PhD in DUMB, and uh, they were hurting too. And it gave them an authentic place to get help by somebody who actually knew the pain and knew the stress. And from there, we uh, I went on a broke radio station that was in chapter 11 bankruptcy a lot of bankruptcy in this story but the uh uh, (laughs) and uh they let us work for free uh which is exactly what we were worth we were horrible daryl and his other brother daryl on doing talk radio it was nasty and um you know we were able to sell some uh a little bit of that first book i wrote out of the trunk of my car and uh started doing some events uh, with an overhead projector and a bad suit and you know, fast forward all of that to this massive thing. Starting all that stuff was about 30 years ago. Starting the radio show was 30 years this year. Hmm. How were you able to turn that into a business, though? Because it seems like at the beginning you were giving free advice, just helping other people out from the church. Mm-hmm. How did that evolve into making money from it or being able to grow that mm-hmm. and hire so many people? Well, we started, I mean, I started, the first thing I did was I thought, okay, I can do counseling. We now call it coaching. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, counseling's got legal implications in the word, but the uh, coaching had people in their finances, and so I would charge 
250 or $750 to help somebody and just meet in a conference room and sit down and help them do that uh, outside of church. I mean, I just word got out. You know, a guy uh, at a re- local restaurant heard I was helping people, and he mm. sent one of his employees over who had an IRS lien and was getting re- their IRS was getting ready to tag his house. And so we were able to get that get an OIC working on that. And um, so I just started coaching people, helping them with their budgets and avoiding a foreclosure, a repo or whatever, all stress stuff, all hurting stuff. And then I went on this little radio show and we weren't making any money on it. We didn't make money. The radio show wasn't profitable for 10 years, but it was, I mean, we didn't make $258,000. I can promise you that. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, but the, uh, there were a lot of people listening and it became a, a megaphone, a way to get to the, uh, to acquire customers. Mm-hmm. So they would come in and do coaching and we could sell books. And then we started doing events that we charged for. And then we opened up uh, a thing called life after debt, which was a 26 week course on money to get out of debt. It evolved into what's now known as financial peace university, mm-hmm. which is now nine weeks. Mercifully, you know, that grew. The events grew, the publishing grew, the speaking grew, uh, and finally the radio show became profitable. We were able to actually sell some ads uh, in the in our talk radio slots, other than just trying to promote our own stuff, sure. which was kind of infomercialish, really. But in every case, we just figured out a different medium or media to help people. And then was there a way to monetize that too, where we could help people make a little money? And you know, if you sell a ten dollar book and you make eight dollars on it or whatever that's good but if you sell a million of them it's better yeah and in that beginning phase when you were just getting started did you guys do any marketing to try to grow these different businesses that you were in or was it mostly just word of mouth and people telling their friends and their family hey you should listen to this guy he's got some great financial advice entertainment it was was mainly word of mouth but we had this wonderful microphone Mm -hmm. of this radio station and the little radio station ended up getting uh, bought out of bankruptcy and by then we had marshaled a following. Mm-hmm. We didn't even know we had ratings because they never told us to say the call letters. Mm-hmm. We were in bankruptcy. It was like it was like a Saturday Night Live skit. <laughs> I mean, it was bad. And so then this professional radio people come in and start teaching us. That you say the call letters. You're kind of illegal if you don't say them once an hour, you know. And so, yeah. and so we start using them in and out of every call and. And so the radio show ended up building the the critical mass from a marketing perspective. We didn't have any money to do marketing. Uh, we were just surviving, uh, making payroll on Friday. And so the first guy I hired was a, a another financial coach because I was maxed out logistically. Uh, then I hired a lady to help us in the office, and uh, you know, and then Financial Peace University started taking off. We put it on video and quit teaching it live, and boy, that went to scale quick. It's now been taught. About 10 million people have been through it in 50,000 churches. But that, you know, it, when we put it on video, that enabled on VHS, okay, yeah. later DVD, now, you know, obviously digitally delivered. Yeah, it was uh, – when we changed the mechanisms of the delivery, we started seeing scale kick out on the different things. And then we started getting more radio stations to add, started syndicating the show, mm-hmm. meaning we would try to get other cities on to carry us and so forth. And, um, you know, we just – I remember when we got to 10 radio stations, I thought, oh, my God, I'm in 10 cities. Wow, am I a big deal or what? You know, and now it's 670 or something like that. It's crazy. Is there a reason you did radio over TV? Yeah, I've got a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, nobody nobody would let me on TV. Really? I mean, I, I get the news media hits here or there. Or when we did a book tour, I got, I got on the Today Show the first time with that first book. 
uh, when I sold it to a publisher, and then we went, we reissued, relaunched it, and they uh, got on the Today Show. I thought, oh God, this is it. It's over, man. I just just checked that box, man, and uh, nobody even knew I was on there. It's great. It's not, you know, I sold some books though. We got it on the New York mm. Times, and um, then People Magazine picked it up. And so we, you know, we ended up getting kind of in the pub business, the publicity business. We started figuring out, oh, that's like free marketing. Hello. And so if we can provide content for them, they'll have us on their shows and doesn't cost a thing. They benefit. We benefit. The viewer listener benefits. But I wasn't good at TV. I did a uh, when Fox Business first launched their their uh, initial launch. I was one of the first I was the show in the evening. I was a primetime show. We did a, a one hour show on there. Uh, that aired in the evening, um, and I learned a lot. TV's a lot harder than radio. It's a lot, and um, people talking in your ear while you're supposed to be talking. My brain's not that good. I'm not smart enough to do that. So, hmm. but we got through it, and I, we did that for two years. And uh, Fox Business shifted their aim at a different demographic. Our demographic's pretty young, and Fox Business at that time was a very old demographic, mm-hmm. and so we we weren't a help to them. That makes at sense. That point. So anyway, but I did a little while, but I really wasn't good at it. I'm, Ooh, I'm really yeah. good at like the three minute interview thing, you know, like on Fox and Friends. Yeah. I do that all the time. Yeah. From here, we've got Fiber into here. They're friends. We they the Fox. That's funny. Fox and Friends are friends. But you know, George and I do that. You know, all the Ramsey personalities. We'll jump on and do those. I'm really good at those. But the long form TV thing is just. What do you think a, that is? I don't. I think there's just so many things going on, and you have to concentrate and. You, know, you have to look at the camera properly, and yeah. I just talk. It's funny that's yeah. long, but he does a three-hour radio show for. I know. Days. I was just thinking <laughs> like, that an hour of TV is just too long. Because huh. like taking like a Doctor Phil format for personal finance and finding really just extreme situations, but helping them through that, I feel like it would be so interesting. CBS had us do a pilot yeah. when the nanny was hot. You remember the nanny? Oh yes. Yeah, she would come in and fix the mean kids well, or whatever. Of course. Or what was that show called? The English. The, it was the English lady. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, about that time, I did a. We ran around all over the country. We had three families to do it, shoot this pilot. Yeah. And their idea was that we would be like the nanny, but in finance, we'd come in, swoop in, and help this couple right. and yeah. so forth. And it was, it was really bad. It was awful. You didn't like the way it turned out? <laughs> no, it was. They they didn't mean they didn't even air the pilot. What? Oh, wow. It sucked Someone that bad. That. It's got to be on the internet. Somewhere. I would. I it would su- it sucked. It. it it really sucked, and it was it was me. Was it just boring? It was me. You think, or what? Yeah, it's just it's just. I mean, well, I mean, it's rea- the funny thing is reality TV has absolutely nothing to do with reality. Mm. Like, I remember walking up to the doorbell at these people's house and ringing the doorbell. I did it like 17 times yeah, before they got the take they yeah. wanted. And I'm like, it's ringing a doorbell. This is supposed <laughs> to be real. I just ring the dad blame thing. Reality TV. It's 17 takes to get the doorbell right. Yeah, I'm like, screw this. I'm not I'm not any good at this. But see, at this point, you would be able to produce your own show if you really wanted to. And it would be a hit. Yeah, or you Dr- could ring the doorbell once. Yeah, you could actually, say you I, actually, we're going to do that with George. Oh my God, are you actually <laughs> way less intimidating? If Dave Ramsey yeah. shows up at your house and hits that doorbell, yes, like, oh true. crap, yeah, yeah, they would be it's quivering like in here. fear. Why? Why yeah. am I a fearful well, character? It's like, hey, these people What's are bad with, you? with money. You show up and they're like, oh gosh, yeah, <laughs> like what did I do? <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna you just get yell it now. More of a golly, more of a Gordon Ramsay. I was about to say, yeah, oh, the kitchen was it kitchen nightmare where he goes in the restaurants and fixes the restaurants, but he, you got to be shouting half nightmare. the time yeah. yelling at them and berating yeah, I'm them not, and, I'm not gonna yeah. <laughs> and you're going to be doing that I don't know that, I, that, that kind thing. of energy. No, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> yelling is a different vibe than Dave. Got it. Okay. I don't yell. What's wrong with you, yeah. Listen to the radio show today. He will be yelling. <laughs> That's interesting. How many people now do you have working with you? Uh, we got about 1,200 in the building. 
Wow. Now, I've heard and I've listened to other interviews you've done that the uh, the interview process to work with you is pretty stringent. How, ma- how many people uh, apply for a job versus how many people get one? And what what's the process like for you to hire somebody? Well, I, I don't hire them. Yeah. I mean, they're hired inside. Our leadership team does the hiring. Uh, the chances of me, I'm not very good at interviewing people, so I'm, they don't let me do it. Um, <laughs> the idea just being that we want people that are on mission and on crusade mm-hmm. and that align with our values, and that's who we want in the building. We have had really bad experience with people who were here for what they could get rather than what they could add. They're takers rather than givers. They mm-hmm. don't add value. And people that add value generally are people that are aligned on our values they add value if they're excited about the crusade of helping people with their mental health or their career or their money or they want to help with that. And even if you know, it's a, a creative, they want to do their creative work for something that matters. Mm-hmm. You know, But if you're just looking for a J-O-B, we want to weed you out before you get in here. Or if you're crazy, we'd like to find that out <laughs> before you get in here. Um, and so we don't just open a, a, open a, a wreck for hire and just whoever can fog up a mirror that looks like they have a good resume let's get it done and get them in here no it's pretty stringent Hmm. because we've had bad experience with having the wrong people in the building Hmm. you know people that aren't are here and unhappy it 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 distracts from all the work because you have to stop and deal with the drama queen instead of getting your work done you know so we don't want to try not let drama in the building if we can help it i mean sometimes people have bad things happen we want to be there for them but somebody who's in here as a taker that's where we've had the worst experience so yeah you go through a whole series of interviews to weed that out and mm-hmm. you can't figure that out in 30 minutes mm-hmm. people can they can be psychotic and you know completely fool you for 30 mm-hmm. minutes they can fool you anyway but right uh, but you know one 30 minute interview you're not you're going to you're not going to get uh, a good team how, but how do you filter that is there a question is there a process that that breaks that down so you're able to see maybe what what an intention is or whether or not there's a good fit you just talk to them and uh you know listen to them Uh, if you just spend enough time and put them in different put people in different situations then you'll get a feel on it um uh you'll get a vibe on it we all i mean we all read people pretty well if we just will let ourselves yeah um and, and so just we're sitting here going do i really want to spend a lot of time with this individual this is a small business, even at 1,200 people. It's, we spend a lot of time together, we, yeah. and we work hard. We work really hard. Um, we go home at 530, but we work really hard while we're here. And so, and I do. Uh, and, and so we just want somebody that's aligned with that, and we ask a lot of questions and talk about who we are and watch their reaction to this is who we are, you know, and do you want to, is that who you want to be around? Well, no, I think that's kind of crazy. Okay, then we've kind of figured that out, yeah. you know. Or they give you some indication of that that feeling or that vibe sure now i'm really curious of your work schedule because you have grandkids now and mm-hmm. how do you how how has that shifted over time with spending time with family versus working versus helping people how do you divvy that up do you the have hardest hours? time the hardest time was the early days yeah. um because we didn't have the help and we we're trying to get the critical mass of the business moving trying to make payroll friday you know that kind of stuff so i would you know i would come in at seven and work all day and then go to a three-hour radio show, come home from that, or come back to the office from that, and then go set up the screens and the overhead projector across the street at the local hotel to run Financial Peace University that night. Those were 16-hour days. Uh, And my wife will tell you those days she was a single mom for a while. But that ran about, I guess at that schedule, it was only about two years. Mm -hmm. We were able to get critical mass and then 
quickly, you, uh, quickly I wanted to delegate some of that. And so anything I could get off my plate that would allow me to be freed up. Uh, and cause I, I don't mind hard work, but, but I do, do not want to set up a, a, something that's not sustainable and working like that for 20 years means you don't have family. Yeah. Working like that means you, you lose your health or working like that's silly, mm-hmm. but doing it for a period of time to get something moving. Well, game on. You know, get ready. You're getting ready for the Super Bowl. You better get ready, you know. Yeah. And so we did that. But nowadays it's evolved. And, uh, you know, the my joke with the team has always been if I hate doing something, it's going to be real bad because I'm just going to stop doing it. No. <laughs> and that means that something you were working on I might not be doing anymore. <laughs> yes. Somebody else is going to do it or we're not doing it at all. So, like, I mean, live events, we used to do, uh, you know, 40 or 50 of those a year running around with me. Mm-hmm. And then now we've got. Ramsey personalities that do a lot of those and I'll go do 10, you know, or 15 or something a year, uh, which really isn't that hard to just run into a city, do an event, run back home. You know, it's not, it's not like I'm gone continuously right. or something like I've got friends in Nashville in the music business. They live on a bus. I'm not doing that. No. At what point did you bring on the personalities? Like, uh, you know, I've been watching George and this is something for me where I've noticed maybe three years ago, was it? Maybe two years ago, you started bringing on other people and you changed the name of your channel from the Dave Ramsey Show to the Ramsey Show mm-hmm. while bringing on other people. It's interesting to see that for the most part, at least from what I saw, you did everything yourself and you were the main face. And as soon as you brought on personalities, I read all the comments and, and some people were mixed about it. But I think over time, people really enjoyed uh, having different perspectives. How much of that was strategic and why did you choose to bring on other people with you? Uh, I'm 62 today. And back to my schedule, when I turned 60, I quit working on Fridays. So, uh, and, and we all pretty well work, you know, from, you know, 7 to 5 or whatever around here. And we all, the whole place, I mean, there's nobody in the parking lot at 530. With the personalities, when I was 48, 14 years ago, um, I got started getting around some business people who uh, were talking, you have to have a succession plan. You have to have a plan to hand this thing off. Otherwise, it just dies when you die. And all the effort and everything you put into this uh, dies. And uh, it seemed kind of silly. If you're going to teach financial responsibility, you ought to be responsible with your assets, you know. So um, I, uh, we started going, okay, we need to have some other – we need to train the next generation of Ramseys to be wise owners. We need to make sure we have leadership in place that can lead without me in the room and without me alive even Mm. then how are we going to hand off the brand and the brand those two you could find best practices on training up the next generation to be wise owners or build quality leaders you can find best practices but it's very difficult to find someone who had handed off a a brand a singular name brand like that to someone and the one-to-one handoffs had the worst so you had like you know the father left it to the daughter or the son and it just didn't work. Mm. There was too much weight on that next generation, uh, and it was um, there was too much risk involved. So we kind of felt like God showed us to uh, diversify that and have a one-to-many handoff on the brand. Mm-hmm. So it, literally 14 years ago, we started hiring and training our first ones. Rachel Cruz my, is my daughter, and she was doing some speaking, and we had other people doing some speaking at the time. We started we first we had horrible names for them. We're like they're message bearers. They carry the message. It's like a little message. Yeah, thing. You know, the it, carriers, was, it was yeah. awful. I mean, we, we, we but we knew we knew where we were going. We just weren't yeah. talking about it intelligently. And uh, then later they became brand somethings, brand brand uh, ambassadors or something, or something like that. Yeah. It was and they, they, no, they were just called brands. 
we just called you brand called them brands uh, and they weren't a brand they were a person yeah there's brands like uh you know Nike, every dollar yeah. of the app is a brand yeah. financial piece is a brand a person you know yes dave ramsey's become a brand but that's really that it was it was confusing everyone and so finally someone came up with the idea of personalities and we named them personalities so now i have multiple personalities <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> Better but yeah so we we you know we've uh rachel and uh you know, we've got eight now or nine um, as of today. And, uh, you know, many of them have had uh, number one bestsellers uh, carrying their they're getting tremendous speaking fees, speaking all over America. Uh, they are high quality communicators and thought leaders within their own right. And but the last piece of that was the actual radio show. Mm hmm. So we had a long before three years ago, we had a solid base of these things happening. Uh, I think Rachel had the first number one bestseller, uh, and that was a fly. <laughs> and uh, it's great, land on my nose. <laughs> yeah. But the uh, uh, yeah, she had the first uh, number one, and gosh, that's probably 2014 or 2012 wow. or something like that. But yeah, so we've had books going out and uh, other things, and including them in the Smart Conference and other events where we were doing multiple people. But then the radio show, we had the plan. We we didn't know what to do with it because we weren't sure it could hand off. Mm -hmm. We thought it might die with me. But then COVID, and we went, okay, Dr. John Deloney talks about mental health and loneliness and anxiety, and boy, have we got some right now. And George and Rachel Cruz talk a lot about hope, and they're fun and funny, and God help us in the middle of quarantine. Everybody needed that. So I just started, I said, let's just, y'all get on the air with me, and let's do mm -hmm. this. And the mistake we made at first was they were uh, – treated like a guest yes and that was that was more awkward chemistry and didn't work well and we've evolved that into a co-host and then the more comfortable they've gotten sitting in the co-host seat the more effective they've been and the less hate we're getting on it yeah but you know i told our guys I said, guys are coming in, comments people don't like it they don't like it and i yeah. said well what are they gonna like static because that's what they're going to get when I'm dead. Yeah. So they might, we might as well try something. You know, I don't really give a crap if yeah. they like it. Because the static, static's your other option. Very opinionated. So, yeah. I read all the comments. So I watch oh, all, Lord, all I your don't. videos. No, comments are. Yeah. Comments, comments are why. But I think Some a lot of it is that uh, in the beginning, people aren't used to it and they don't like what they're not used to. Yeah. I remember when Jack first came on. The comments, I don't like Jack. Something about not it. all of them. No, like, it, but, but it's you know, it was Jack. Split. You know, I can't believe it. Jack would read into this, be like his body language suggests he's like you know. Oh, yeah, people were like diagnosing me with certain things. They were like, oh, he's a sociopath. I know Jack. I think he's a narcissist. It's like, what, yeah. That's what have I said. He's a narcissist. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it you know was hilarious. Yeah. But then over time, now people, say, I I don't like Graham on here. I prefer Jack on the podcast. Very and it's. Interesting to see how it shifted over time. Yeah. It hasn't shifted. You're doing yeah. great. That's I'm doing to us okay too now. They go. Yeah. I prefer George over. Yeah, Dave. we yeah, get that. Yeah. yeah, we get that. <laughs> so much. Really. George is nice. Rachel, they do like. Me. Rachel's yeah. actually yeah. very nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They like Rachel. I've yeah. got a mean bone in me that comes out occasionally. <laughs> That's you have yeah. to. You, you're that guy. Just, I don't yell. Um, it's a calm mean. Mm. Okay, it's passive aggressive. It's snark. Yeah. Snark. There we go. How did you guys meet? We met when I started working here as an intern hmm. back in 2013. I kind of snuck in the door. I didn't have to go through 19 interviews because as an intern, which I don't even think we do those anymore. No, we don't. They're just like, well, he's an That's intern. That's why. He's a temp. Yeah. He's here for 10 months. <laughs> you know, we'll get him. He'll do yeah. the work. while someone back on, could it be? Someone's okay. on maternity leave. This yeah. guy knows social media. We'll have him do some things, and then he'll be out of there. And uh, I went, hey, I want to stay here. And they went, well... Could, do you have a, do you have any skills? And I went, I could do this role over here. So I jumped into email marketing. Hmm. 
for about two and a half years, went back to social media for the personalities. That's what drew me here was our personalities with a message to share that was creative and gave people hope. And so I wanted to help them spread that message through social media and marketing and email and all those things. And over time, they had seen me on the stage at our Battle of the Bands event, which is one of the ways we have a great time, build culture here, internal team members, form bands, a lot of failed musicians around here in Nashville. Yeah. I play drums, by the way. <laughs> yes. So if you need a drummer, just let hey, me know. guest he's appearance. Not, he's yeah. not a failed drummer, though. <laughs> he's actually <laughs> successful. You were, like, on tours and he, stuff. Yeah, he, has, well, he, he yeah. gets $2 royalty checks. I heard yeah. about him. Oh, oh yeah. my gosh, yes. I haven't gotten a royalty We've check in a research. while. The last one is probably, like, 60 cents. I get, like, 30 bucks a month from my music career, so I'm beating you bad, in that yeah. regard. There you go. So I started doing that, and they went, well, we should have him MC and host, because Ken Coleman, one of our personalities, was stepping into that role, mm -hmm. and so I started hosting events and the video channel for the show and curriculums, you name it. And last year, back in 2021, I was knighted personality because of how much I cared about this message and wanting to teach it and create content around it, especially for the younger generations. Mm -hmm. I wasn't aware we knighted anyone. I don't know. I mean, there wasn't an official knighting. It, it was more of just a meeting where they went, hey, you're going to do this now. And I went, okay. You know, which I've had about six or Sir seven George. jobs here at Ramsey. Sir George. I like that. Yeah. It's got a ring to it. Stick with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, Jack and I are both lords. Technically. Technically. Yeah. We did We're one lords. of those uh, certificates where we own a one-by-one -one plot of land. You could be a lord for like 30 bucks online, apparently. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I mean, we you, could, you can own a star, too. <laughs> I have a star. Yeah, you have a star yeah, and a plot NFT, of land and your award. It's an NFT. It's an NFT. This is this is pretty incredible. Y'all yeah. are, are really accomplished. <laughs> yeah. What was it like, by the way, for your first show? Oh, my like goodness. Because are they filmed live? Yeah, everything's or, live. I guess with yeah. the delay. Yeah, with yeah, this, okay. it's like, well, we can edit it out. If I do a big flub. Yeah. And so I was live, I think it was August 2nd of 2021, and I had just launched my very own podcast called The Fine Print, helping people avoid the traps out there with money. And so I was on air with Dave, and there was it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of weight to be on you know, the second largest talk radio show in America next to Dave Ramsey. Um, but... At that point, I had done so many other things in front of cameras and mics. And so I, you know, at first you're nervous and then you get on air and Dave does the intro and you're like, holy crap, I'm, I'm in it. I'm inside yeah. of the Matrix right now. And we just had a good time with it. And over time, you get more and more comfortable. There's not as much nerves anymore, right. but your body keeps the score. Your body knows you are live on air in front of millions of people. Don't screw up. Don't say the wrong thing. And by the way, this is then on YouTube for the rest of time. Yeah. So my kids will go back, you know, 20 years from now and watch old clips of me saying stupid stuff. But, you know, Dave led the way. He right. <laughs> doing that. So Saying stupid stuff? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> what qualities did you see in George that made you feel comfortable putting him next to you? In all of our personalities, we're looking for uh, – you know, obviously a strong intellect because a lot of the stuff we do is quick react and you do not have time to think about the next day what you wish you had said. It's over. Mm -hmm. You're doing an interview on Fox or you're on the air live or we're doing a Q&A in front of a live audience or whatever it is and you got to be able to just draw and fire. Um, so we're looking for that. Um, but we're also looking for that uh, it factor on the stage or in front of a microphone, in front of a camera. And different people have different places that are a strength. I've already said my strength is not on camera. Mm -hmm. uh, I enjoy the stage, and I enjoy the, the, the uh, intimacy that talk radio has uh, because you're dealing with just one uh, sense, just, just hearing. And yeah. so you're not getting the benefit of body language, or, and you're listening for that pause that means they lied, or you're listening for uh, you know the, the nuance of it. And... 30 years of doing it, you can begin to get it dialed in. But the, the it factor in one of those places, can they lift people? 
So in our situation, we have to be able to put out high quality information, but doing it, doing it in a way with story and with humor that is aspirational, that's lifting. Mm-hmm. You know, there has to be a motivational piece to it. If you just lift with no information, that's just fluff. But if you send out information with no lift, that's called a boring 401k meeting. Yeah. And nobody wants to go to those. And so we're not doing either one of those. And so, you know, we sit and talk to, you know, Dr. John Deloney, we're interviewing him uh, about coming on and doing this. Mm-hmm. And he was the dean of students at a local university. But you're just sitting in a room with him. You get real quick. You go how quick he is, how smart he is, and how funny he is, self-deprecating. And, and uh, I went, this guy can do he, he can handle that. And what George did was, uh, jo- George has always had that. I mean, he loves to perform. He's a musician. He, al- you know, already had that. Uh, and, and we had had him in front of the camera with the video channel as mm-hmm. the host. So we got to see, you know, could the audience love George as a host? And, you know, could they, could he, could he connect? And you got to be able to do that through these things or th- from the stage or whatever it is. And he obviously did that. And he's got an incredible work ethic. He's one of the of all the personalities. He's probably the one that does the most work to prepare hmm. before he comes on the air to do something. So he'll come in with like three articles when we're going on the air and go, "Hey, we could talk about this stuff." I've been looking at this this morning, and uh, my level of preparation is I walked in there and hit on. You know, I mean, it was <laughs> yeah, like because yeah. I've, I've been doing it a long time, but I don't yeah. I don't track that stuff. But he's bringing good, fresh, new ideas and chemistry from his work ethic. Yeah. And so that's the type of stuff we were looking for. And that, that he definitely personifies. Yeah. That. I have to say the level of preparation, even when we walked in here, I looked at the desk and I'm like, wow, this is similar to our desk. And I looked over, I looked at the lights. I'm like, wow, these very similar to our lights. And you said that you've created this to somewhat replicate the iced coffee hour. And just the level, the attention to detail, I've, I've never seen like this before. Our team has very high standards, and it stems from this guy yeah. right here. His, uh, we call it the suck bar around here, and the suck bar is down here for most of America, most companies, and everything we do is to the highest standard. You know, When we say we do our work as unto the Lord, that means we are putting our 110% effort in. We have a core value of excellence in the ordinary, which means the smallest things. Before we went live, we are delinting a shirt. I know. I because we don't want anything never, to distract yeah. from what know we're trying to do. Delinting is a word. It's a new word. <laughs> but our team, I did none of this, by the way. It's our amazing video crew yes. over here and their level of I mean, excellence. And over time, you know, 10 years ago, we weren't at the level we were now. And so we, we grew over time. We got better cameras. We got better at lighting. We hired even more talented people. And so over time, now the bar is just way up here. And this is where we start. Mm-hmm. And if you've been to our live event. Yes. And so, you know, our production values, the things that we put out there, we want to be the best out there. And especially in the faith space, there's a lot of just like bad, you know, SNL skit level stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to stand out from that crowd and do our work as unto the Lord. And so that's what we've yeah. been doing now for over many, many years. Yeah. Now, I'm curious about this because your faith plays an important part in the business, in your life. Where did that start? Because you mentioned uh, in one of the interviews that you've done that it wasn't on the way down. It was on the way up that you began to to practice, and was there a catalyst, or where did that start, or what prompted that, and how were you before that point? <laughs> um, well, yeah, the, the phrase we always use is, I met God on the way up, I got to know yeah. him on the way down, yeah. meaning that first rise in wealth, um, and, and so I do everything backwards. A lot of people, their faith journey begins at a point of crisis. Mine was at a point of prosperity, but it deepened with the going through that bankruptcy walk over two and a half years. And so yeah, I met God as an adult 
and uh, but I didn't have a a framework for really uh, anything. I, you know, how do I be a good husband? Okay, I'm going to learn that from biblical teaching. I'm going to how do you raise good kids? I'm going to learn that from a source of truth, biblical teaching. I'm going to learn how to handle money. I'm going to learn leadership. I'm going to and because they're you know the principles are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, within uh, biblical wisdom, uh, and it just gave me a framework to form my uh, character. And uh, so then, you know, that's why I don't read comments, because I'm not really taking a poll. We're going to do what we're going to do, and if you don't like it, it's okay, I understand. You get There's a lot of stuff you can watch and a lot of stuff you can buy and other places, and it's okay. But this is who we are. And um, we're not trying to rub it in someone's face in terms of the, our faith, but, but it is who we are. We're not going to be apologetic about it. And then, of course, you get a lot of, we get a lot of hate and a lot of stuff from that. Um, but, you know, people generally respect someone that's very authentic. Yeah. You know, um, you know uh, I've got friends that are uh, deeply involved in a different faith. Uh, you know, Muslim or Jewish or mm-hmm. whatever, uh, and, and uh, I tremendously respect them for being who they are. And uh, it, it's people that change and blow with the wind and virtue signal just to be try to try to let everybody know that they're, you know, I, I'm into this thing or I'm into that thing, so yeah. that you like them. And I'm like, well, I don't, uh, that's not. We're not taking a poll. Yeah. Was there a moment for you though where you feel like your your faith had you know increased, or was was there a pivotal point? I guess in your twenties. Yeah, well, it, you know, it did increase. Yeah. It deepened okay. in the pain, yeah. the stress level of walking through losing everything, and the strain it put on our marriage. It deepened, mm. you know, the, that that pain point deepened the quality of our faith. And then, you know, I mean, stuff around here we go through. We all go through crap, yeah. you know, um, whether it's just drama or whatever it is, or a you know stress point, and you go, okay. Uh, I got to decide really what my center is on this. Where am I drawing my, you know, what's my source? Sure. Really, where am I going with this? And so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a walk. It's not a singular decision. It's not a singular inflection point. Got it. Now you've been married for how many years? 40. 40. 40 years. Congratulations. Thank you. That's incredible. What have you noticed that's led to such a longstanding relationship and a happy relationship, I presume. Yeah, Sharon says we've had um, 33 good years of marriage. So. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right. It's a good ratio. That's not terrible. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yeah. thank God she's not married to the guy she married originally. He's gotten better over time. Uh, I've grown. I've learned, learned how to be a better man, learned how to be a better husband, learned how to be a better dad, and uh, now I have the privilege of being a granddad. And if I'd have known how great grandkids were going to be, I'd have been nicer to their parents. But, yeah. <laughs> But the uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, you know it, it's um, it is a little bit like leading a team, or raising kids, or uh, just dealing with the audience. Um, are you are you there to add value and help, or are you there to take? And takers just don't, you know, the parasites of this life they don't do as well, and they don't have as high quality experience um and the odd thing is is if you choose to serve you end up um you know in in a position of uh of prosperity in every part of your life and so you know sometimes when i serve a team member um, i'm asking them to work somewhere else because they suck at their job Mm. 
And so they really need to go do something they're good at, you know. Uh, and, I, you know, we serve them by not letting them work here. Um, we serve the rest of the team if someone's misbehaving by not letting them stay in the building and uh, so that people here are safe um, and emotionally safe uh, with, you know, that situation. So it's an act of service sometimes to be strong and to take yeah. action. But that, and that's true in marriage. It's true in leadership. And yeah. it's true certainly with kids. How do you feel that you've improved and evolved as both a husband and a father? Um, well, I, I, I've not arri- arrived, but I am better. Yeah. Um, and I think um, I'm a better leader. I used to be more of a boss. Mm-hmm. I'm a better um, uh, but it is it's a character issue and it really does come down to you know deciding that you're going to get the most joy out of adding value to other people you're going to get the most uh, reward out of helping someone else do their thing uh, without just saying okay what can I get out of this what can I get out yeah. of this what can I get out of this one thing I kind of wanted to harp back on is the amazing culture that you guys have established here. We were told by your head of security that once every week you get all 1,200 employees in one room and talk to them all about the different stuff going on with the business to, for everyone to get updated on what's going on. How effective have you found that to you know make the culture better here? Because I know between Graham and me and our other, uh, I guess, partner alex mm-hmm. we don't have meetings and it's only three <laughs> people it's through text yeah, message like, every now and yeah <laughs> and i guess we could do a lot better of a job with that but uh i just want to know how that contributes to the the culture here and have you found that to be a i don't know to contribute a, you a know, high roi we've learned so many things the, the hard way by doing it wrong and doing it stupid um the what we figured out is is that where there is no communication, it's very difficult, or limited communication or poor communication, it's very difficult to build trust. And when you don't trust the people you're working with, you all you spend all your energy looking over your shoulder for the knife that's coming or all your energy spent on distract instead of doing the thing. But when you when you when everybody has a level of trust, a high level of trust, it's never perfect because we're all humans. But when you have a high level of trust, things run really fast, really efficiently. Productivity mm-hmm. goes up. And so even when there was like 10 of us, we would just get around a conference table and go, OK, what are we working on? What's everybody doing? Because if the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, they do not assume good. They assume bad. They assume it's going to be mm-hmm. bad and there's something bad. If they think they would rather hear bad news that's the truth than no news because they assume bad when it's no news. And oftentimes there was no news or no good or or no bad news. Uh, But if you just don't talk about it when there is bad news, you don't talk about it when uh, and and just let people know what's going on. And so the uh, our once a week staff meeting, I mean, 1200 people. 50 weeks a year, whatever it is, 48 weeks a year, we end up in that room. That's a heavy investment in mm-hmm. payroll. If you just add the dollars up for an hour of that every, you know, every week. But it, the ROI on it is the, this level of trust goes up because you get to hear George up there. We had a panel with all the personalities on there the other day, th- this week. And, you know, they get to see the personalities and it was a behind the scenes kind of joking. They're cutting up and they're, you know, they're telling stories on each other and what they're working on right now, what they dream about in the future. And, you know, some of the stuff that led them here. And it was, it was really the team gets to love the personalities then and wants to work with them and for them and help them and hmm. that kind of thing. And then, you know, we had a guy get up and 
you know, talk about what's happening with the high school curriculum that we've got. So we know what's going on with that. And they, you know, we're able to get that. We're changing this around. And here's the thing we're offering. And here's a test we ran that bombed and didn't work. And, you know, and people get up and tell what's happening in the different areas of the business because, I mean, it's, there's a lot of different things going on in these buildings. And, you know, I don't even know sometimes what's going on over there. Uh, if I don't, you know, get reports in from the leadership team on it, I would have zero clue. Uh, but it's really refreshing, and and you know we have to be real careful to, for it to not be boring, because you can sit over there and go, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Oh God, I'm so tired. I don't want to be around anymore and listen to this crap. You don't want to do all that. So it's need to be quick, concise, need to be uh, uplifting, and it needs to be truthful. And we also recognize people. We use it for recognition. Uh, uh, we use it to restate the core values and say, this is, hey, here's the core value of this, and I'll teach on it a little bit, I'll speak, and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, so it's just a real good, solid, uh, and once we kind of said, this is a lot of money, we really need to, because we, we kind of just used to walk in and mm. just like ad hoc do it, you know? But now it's very programmed and has an agenda, and how many minutes you've got is on a clock up there, mm. and that kind of I mean, it's because it's such a heavy investment, yeah. we want yeah. it to be good and tight, you know? But uh, yeah, it, that helps a lot, because when, then when the right hand knows what the left hand is doing, things move at the speed of trust, and, you know. If I don't have to think about whether you got my back or whether you know what the flip you're doing or whatever, then I can go do my thing, and everybody everybody's that way in the whole building. Hmm. At what point did you start doing that? I, when there was about ten, because we've, I, you know, I'm, I'm like, it's amazing with ten people that hmm. somebody could be pissed off about something that doesn't exist. You know, <laughs> you know, it's just like you know, they just—they just made up something in their head driving home. They're like, you know, I—I oh, I, I just think I think he looked at me funny today. And yeah, like, holy crap! How do you do that? But yeah, the mind—the mind does that. It goes to dark places if it doesn't have information. That's true. There, there was yeah. a study that was done. And I found really interesting that a business, let's just say, has ten employees, and they asked each of the ten employees. What percentage do you contribute to the business's success? And they added up all of the percentages of the 10 points. 2,000. And it was like, yeah, it was like 180, 200%. Yeah, so it's yeah. like clearly the math doesn't work out, but they overassume what they're doing and they underassume what their, you know, partners are doing. Yeah. yeah and, you know, well, he doesn't like right. me. I'm yeah. Like, How do you know? Because he walked by you and he, <laughs> maybe his wife yelled at him before he walked out this morning. He's still trying to get to a cup of coffee and leave him alone. <laughs> you know, how, how, how do the meetings help with that? Do they flush out some of these uh, issues? Or well, when you hear that, what's yeah. really going on, you yeah. go, oh, well, that, that team over there is going through crap right now. Yeah. They're stressed. That whole product line they launched failed. And, you know, they're dealing with all that. And so maybe, you know, maybe I can cut them a little slack in the way yeah. they eye roll or something, you know. And uh, so, uh, you know, just being in the same room, you pick up on, and Dr. Deloney talks about this from a psychological standpoint, you regulate off yeah. of other people that you're in the room with you know and you, you over time you're, you're gonna get a vibe and you get stable and that's what's happened actually on the air with the personalities it took a little time for that chemistry to lock in and and stabilize and where we can just sit there and have a conversation cut up and we can you know be messing with each other mess with the guys in the booth we can be talking to somebody on the air kind of know where the other one's going a little bit and you know jo you know, George knows where I'm going to go, and I'm hearing, I'm, yeah, yeah, he's going to take that. I'm going to sit back and let him run that one, you know. Mm. And you get that, but that comes from just time spent together. Yeah. 
Has there anything else that you've learned along the way in terms of managing a business and, and being able to scale it efficiently? It seems like you've done an incredible job of doing that. And my fear is always overscaling, taking on too much responsibility, getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, whereas I think, you know, Jack is, is prominent that, you know, we should be expanding more. We should be taking on more. Mm-hmm. How do you find a balance for that? You know, it, it's just it's uh, it's worth it, but it's hard. Uh, it's not easy because you're dealing with people and um, we teach when we're teaching entree leadership uh, teaching small business people about the same types of questions um, that you know people are going to be your greatest blessing uh, they're going to be the biggest line item payroll on your P&L mm-hmm. your largest investment in other words um, and uh, they're also going to be the greatest source of pain if you love people and you care about people and you say, okay, I'm going to take care of that person. We're going to do this. And then you turn around six months later and they quit for a nickel an hour more or something. I'm like, dad, gum, you forgot about that time. I gave you a car. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> when you, you know, it's like, ow, that hurt. You know, it leaves a mark. And, but you, you know, that doesn't mean you can't still turn around and do something good for somebody. Yeah. And so, um, we continue to pour into, continue to love people. Well, continue to treat them like we'd want to be treated. Um, and uh, continue to fire them if they don't fit in and if they're not going to, you know, align with who we are. And so, and the team, you know, it's like when we're bringing on new team members, I, I make them a promise. I promise you're not going to have to work with people of bad character and people who will not play to win. You're not going to have to play. You're not going to have to run with You're, you're a thoroughbred. You don't have to be, you don't have to work with donkeys. Mm-hmm. We're going to regularly do donkeyectomies. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So we got about 20 minutes left. I think it would be interesting if we shift and talk a little bit about the economy, the stock market, real estate. Um, Where do you see the economy heading over the next, let's say, one to two years? Because I think we have a lot of interesting catalysts going on with inflation that may have peaked, um, student loan forgiveness that just came up, which might have some implications down the line. Where is your stance about where we are today? It's obviously... uh Today, we're in a bad place, uh, but we're not in a devastating place. It, but the, if you want to call where we are today prosperity, you would be ignorant. Um, and you would have to have some kind of a political agenda um, because any person that can look at life and look at numbers and look at the, the indicators in the economy, the, the metrics can tell we're not – this is not a time of prosperity. Uh, now, the good news is there's always opportunity in uptimes and there's opportunity in downtimes and so that you know it may be a time that you take more space that you expand your uh your your footprint that you expand your market share uh, downtimes are a really good time to do that because a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines whining sucking your thumb when things are slow mm-hmm. and so it's a good time to be a hard charger in the middle of that uh, in terms of your personal reaction to it but no there's no question that we're you know, running a uh, the GDP is running flat to down just a little to up just a little, yeah. which is basically hovering around recession. We did have officially a recession, two consecutive quarters of a downturn. I don't care how you want to define it. it that's what they teach in econ class. So, but it wasn't much of one. It yeah. was like quarter of a percent. It was a joke. Mm-hmm. As, as recessions go, it was a pitiful one. You know, but it, but it's also not booming. It's not a time of great prosperity and. Yeah. And the fields aren't full, you know, or that kind of thing. So we definitely have that. Uh, the inflation thing was aggravated by Washington, but certainly was caused by the uh, economic suppression around COVID. I mean, we shut down the economy. Mm-hmm. When you shut down an economy the size of the United States of America, the size of the world, 
and you want to restart it, you're going to have shortages. Uh, that's called supply chain, maybe. You can call it whatever you want to call it, but you're going to have shortages. And when you have shortages, you're always going to have price increases. Thus, you're going to have inflation. And so, uh, you know, it makes a real case for we destroy, we economically destroyed some people's lives with the COVID policies. Sure. Uh, was it worth it? Well, we can argue about that. It's kind of late, but we could argue about it in the name of flattening the curve, if you mm. remember that. That's what we were all doing. Everybody sits at home, so the factories all shut yeah. down, so they're not making cars, so there's a car shortage, so cars go up. I mean, for the first time in, since they've been made, used cars went yeah. up in value. Never in the history of the car has that occurred, and never again will it unless you do something <laughs> stupid to the economy, like shut the whole freaking thing down. Um in the name of flattening the curve. But the ripple effect is that of that that you get inflation. Uh, and, and then you get people, tink, you know, the Biden administration's tinkering with the energy policies in the name of green. And so they're shutting down, you know, uh, domestic oil production or, or mm. greatly curtailing it, making it an unfriendly environment for them for sure, intentionally in the name of a green yeah. policy. And you can argue about whether that's the right thing to do or not, but you can't argue about the fact that that caused gas prices to be $5. I mean... Uh, that's where it comes from. It's a shortage. Shortage, scarcity, always. It's a simple supply-demand curve, uh, and shortage always creates that. So we've got inflation as a result of those things. Uh, I kind of think that's going to level on out. I don't think it's going to continue. If the Fed will quit screwing around with it, but they're, they can't. They're like a mad scientist. <laughs> so, um, But uh, the, uh, the real estate market, you know, it's crazy. It was white hot. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that was scarcity. People sitting around looking at their house going, this, this house sucks. I don't spend enough time here to realize how bad it sucks. And, uh, you know, but I'm quarantined. I'm stuck here. So now when I, as soon as this is over, I'm going to go change houses. And yeah. boy, by God, they did. Or I'm getting out of the state. Uh, we had a migration that occurred, you know. So there's all kinds of weird stuff that's um, probably a once-in-a-lifetime events in the real estate world. So um, my you know, my guess is, and really, if you look back for the last 30 years I've been doing this, it pretty well plays out that uh, this too shall pass. And, um, you know, regardless of uh, how smart or how dumb the people in Washington are, eventually these the, the wrinkles will be smoothed out of this. And 36 months from now, we should see a completely different economy than we do today. Yeah. I don't think inflation. This is not long-term inflationary cycle. This is caused by shortages. Yeah. Where do you see the opportunities today for most people? I know you're talking about expanding, but I would say for the average person who's maybe concerned that home prices are going to go down, maybe they believe that or they believe that, you know, stock prices are still high, things are going to crash. Uh, you know, my job is going well, but where's the next opportunity? Uh, no short term where the next opportunity is, but I do know long term, I'm buying mutual funds and real estate. That's what I do. And that's my personal wealth building plan mm. it's not really complicated um why because i'm pretty dadgum sure that a, an 80 year history in the stock market of it, you know, of the economy getting stronger and stronger those companies continue to make profit and that profit results in value of those stocks going up and over time you know we're as a grouping the stock market the the what you're saying is is, is the american economy going to permanently go down and stay down if you say the stock market's going to go down and stay down, that's what you're saying, mm-hmm. and that I just don't believe that. And it's not it's not weird. It's just uh, there's an 80 year track record you can look mm-hmm. at and go, uh, didn't happen. Went down here, came back up. Went down here, came back up. Went down, uh, you know, with quarantine, drop, you know, 
yeah. through the floor. And then was back 18 months later, six months later, whatever, it was back up to where yeah. it was. So, um, you know, I, I'm just going to continue to invest. It's yeah. just long-term, long-term, long-term. I, I just, you know, I got in the real estate business, as we said, 1978. I mean, come on. And so, and those houses that I was selling then, yeah. don't you wish you owned all of them? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh, for what they're worth today. Oh, of course. Now, when you invest in real estate, do you prefer residential or commercial? Uh, these days, it's commercial just because of scale, the number of dollars mm-hmm. involved. And um, real residential is a great place to get started. I've still got, I don't know, 10, 15 houses or something in our portfolio, but uh, just because I hardly ever sell anything. Sure. Just buy it and keep it forever. Buy quality properties at a deal keep them forever but um commercials give me better roi hmm. uh right now than uh of course our stuff's 100 percent paid for we don't borrow money but um it's giving me the best internal rates of return and cash on cash roi yeah. uh overall i've got a one piece of commercial it just sucks i can't get it rented but um but uh, the rest of them are doing really really well and of course the residential is all jamming and the rents have yeah. gone the rents have gone up uh, this year, uh, last two years, pretty dramatically, but um, still not making cash on cash or cash on value. Sure. What the value? If I took that million dollar house or that seven hundred thousand dollar house, and I, you know, what's my return on it? Cash on cash isn't that great. Yeah. It's okay, but uh, even with high rents, you know, yeah. and, uh, now, what do you think about? the movement right now it seems that landlords are evil they're taking advantage of their tenants it seems like there's been a shift over the last two years with rents and house prices going up that buying a house right now is 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 immoral what are your thoughts on that because that's a movement that i've seen it's been taking a a stronger hold than i would have expected yeah that comes and goes too um i mean when when people are hurting and they're scared socialism is, is gets in vogue and being angry australians call it tall poppy syndrome mm. uh or which is an aristotle yeah. thing actually isn't you know the poppy that gets higher has to be cut down yep. and so anybody that makes money must be destroyed anybody that's successful must be destroyed so that we're all equal and uh which you know as we have figured out we are not all equal it doesn't work out that way I mean, it turns out that Brad Paisley's better at playing a guitar than I am, and uh, we're not all equal. And it turns out that other people, you know, my friend Brad Thor sells, he does a fiction book on spies and sells $15 million per copy, mm. which pisses me off. But, <laughs> but, you know, we're not all equal. But I don't think yeah. Brad should be destroyed because he sold more books than I did. Yeah. I'm happy for him. And it didn't cost me anything except when I bought a copy. But, I mean, it was not, you know, so it's... Uh, that kind of stuff, but I, it, it's um, at the core of that is the kind of the wealth inequality concepts, the yeah. movement or the uh, the socialism idea that you know if you're somehow a capitalist that you are evil, um, and really the core of all of that is uh, two of the deadly sins: envy and jealousy. Uh, jealousy is I want what you have; envy is I don't think you should have it. Hmm. And this is envy. You should be, you know, you you should be, it should be taken away from you because you bought a house and charged rent. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the things got really excited about something I said on the air and trashed me. I can't remember who it was and, and one of the uh, YouTubers or somebody. And, uh, cause I said, yeah, I'm going to raise my rents. I'm like, well, you're not a Christian. I'm like, what's, God, what's Christians don't raise rents. I mean, what kind of dumb butt statement is that? Of course we raise rents. You know, we charge market rent. 
It's not evil. Mm-hmm. You're not evil. You're providing a house, and you don't have to live there. Well, where are, you, where are your people going to live that can't afford it? Somewhere else, you know? I grew up in a neighborhood that was over the tracks from this neighborhood, and when we were growing up, we went, hey, rich people live over there. I can't afford to live over there. That's what we said, <laughs> you know, and I can't afford to live there anymore. They, the rents went up, and, you know, if you make $45,000 a year, you cannot live in Manhattan. Hello. You can't pay the rent. Mm-hmm. Welcome to life. Uh, you, you're going to have to make more if you're going to live in Manhattan. Uh, that's how it works. Well, it's evil. No, it's not evil. It's just math. Math is not evil. It's not. Nobody's doing anything wrong. Nobody's out to hurt you. It's just you. You know, you don't get a pass on math because you got your little butt hurt feelings. Yeah, I will say I did make a mistake uh, two years ago. I made a comment to Kevin O'Leary who reviewed my portfolio and we got to a property and we explained the cash flow. He looked at one property. He says, "Well, the rents on this is lower than every other place that you have." And I said, "Well, I've never raised the rent on that tenant." And it was 10 years I had not raised the rent. She was a great tenant, never a single issue, always paid on time, treated the place like her own. And I figured, you know what? I wouldn't raise the rent. It makes my life easy. Don't have to think about it. She's there. Uh, she was a tenant 10 years later, had some issues. And I, I, I don't want to go into detail, but I wish I, I should have raised the rent. It was a huge mistake that I made looking back that I should have done that as, well, I, as part of a smart business. To, exactly. No, and it's, it's also psychological. Okay, because she started to get confused at some point who owned the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so with our tenants and with our advertisers, we go up every year. Twenty five dollars. I don't know. But we go up <laughs> yeah. every year. We don't any, want anyone to go. Uh, well, I'm doing him a favor by being here. And so, it's, yeah. no, this is a transaction. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to pay the rent and you get to stay. This is a transaction, and I'm going to take care of the stuff that's broken, and I'm going to be kind to you and nice to you, but you are not entitled because you have been here a long time to cheaper rent. Now, I, I will you know, maybe not raise it all the way to market to not push somebody out because of the cost of a turnover, but that's an economic decision. Yeah. That's not a I'm doing you a favor. And, you know, and then if you run your business well, then you can choose – as a one-off in a situation to be kind to someone like we had a tenant that was going through cancer treatments and the family was just destroyed and so we not only uh didn't go up on rent we just gave them like three months with no rent just to help them but that was an act of kindness and generosity uh that was not a a statement of previously we've been doing something evil and now we're going to do something good no instead we're having a transaction here pay your rent you get to stay this is the value of the property and you can't you, it doesn't work anymore uh, um and oh you've got a life thing and i've got some margin so i can just be kind i can just be generous mm-hmm. and give you give you a little time off and we did do that um we took over we bought a building one time in a foreclosure that had a a church operation operating a daycare and the daycare was primarily serving uh the underserved area a lower income situation and they didn't have much margin in running that thing and they were running a nonprofit. we sat down with the guys and you know we ended up giving them the first six months after we bought the building free so they could get up get things running but it wasn't it wasn't because charging rent was evil it was because we were able to help these people get their business situated and that was a nice good thing to do generosity wise but no it's ridiculous so we always go up on rents every year yeah i wanted to learn yeah there's a certain investing philosophy i know you feel very strongly about which is debt and i'm assuming you probably share that sentiment with dave 
So Graham and I have had very unique experiences with debt. Graham utilized debt extremely well to grow his real estate portfolio. In the beginning, he took on a decent amount of debt uh, and was able to leverage because of that. I have had a good and a bad experience with debt. Uh, I bought a house I wouldn't have been able to afford without debt. And since I bought it, I've appreciated maybe I've gained probably $90,000, dollars or so in equity. On the flip side, I had a stock portfolio that's kind of my fun portfolio. And I brought it up from 20 or so thousand to like 75000 And right around 75000 I went in on margin. Ooh. Yeah. So I, I know where this is going. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, that was in December. So, <laughs> the uh, peak. yeah, and the timing sucks. It was really bad. See, if I you thought just I, inverse Jack's trades, you'll make it. You really would. Yeah. <laughs> Unfort- it's true, but unfortunate. Yeah. But uh, I basically thought I was a genius because I was making money all last year. And I'm like, you know what? I got this. I'm just going to continue doing what I have been doing. But this time, I'm going to leverage. Now, I had the money, I had the cash, but I decided leverage. Why not? It's on Robinhood. So I did that. And uh, currently, sitting at about 7,000. Uh, from 75,000. And, uh, you know, so I've had both good and bad experiences with that. And I wanted to know, because maybe the average person isn't as responsible as maybe Graham is with that. Maybe they're like me on my Robin Hood thing. Do you say debt is bad? Because for the average person, that is a good principle to live by. And with that, I kind of agree with you. However, if people do utilize debt in an effective way, such as Graham, he's very responsible, very well researched on you know, the markets and how he can leverage his money with debt. Do you think that that is a more effective way to, to grow fast if you're calculated with it? It is a more effective way to grow fast if that's your goal. But what people leave out of the discussion is that you've increased your risk exponentially. More debt equals more risk, period. Um, and so, uh, you know, after I went broke, I had to analyze and go, okay, what went wrong here? And because was it, see, I had never lost money on a flip. I was not behind on the notes. They just called them. Hmm. They had the ability to do that because it was commercial paper. It wasn't traditional mortgages. It was 90-day paper. And um, so, I, you know, what it amounted to was, and I, so I had proven track record of making money. I mean, I did. I, I probably owned 2,000 pieces of real estate in my life. And so I was doing a lot of flips. And some of them I was doing in 24 hours. You know, I would just buy them and flip them to another investor and make 10 grand and keep walking, you know, that kind of stuff. So, but I was doing 100% financed. Hmm. I didn't put any money in it. Not a dime. I didn't have any money. So I talked to a guy into giving me a 100% deal on this house. I flipped it. I made 10 grand. Hey. And I talked him into doing it again. Then I talked him into doing it again. Then I talked him into doing a million two and uh, with that one bank. And yeah, so it set me up. And so after I crashed, I kind of had to go through a CSI, you know, an autopsy and go, okay, why did the patient die? <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. so what I, you know, because everything I was taught, I grew up in the real estate business. And when, you, when you're in the real estate business as a profession, one of the rules is they take your risk meter out and they sit on the table and they break it. So you have no, you have no ability to perceive risk because everything's good. Everything's going up and, you know, and, and you know, it always works. And uh, the, the mythology that just because something worked once, it's always going to work every time. So uh, I, I had to go through kind of a healing of my heart in that regard and go, oh, wait a minute, this is risk. Uh, oh, wait a minute, OPM, other people's money. Yeah, it's kind of got that get-rich-quick slimy vibe to it, you know, and all that. But there are people that intelligently, more intelligently than that, use debt. And so there's a spectrum there. But even those are taking on risk. 
And so when you have Buffett says when the uh, when the tide goes out, you can tell who's skinny dipping. So when you stress test with an economic problem of some kind, uh, outside variable or inside variable, inside your organization or your life, inside your portfolio, or the economy, like a, a quarantine type thing comes up, or uh, inflation or mm-hmm. recession, and you stress test your theories, um, you know you can tell who's skinny dipping when the tide goes out. And uh, you, you, if your theories don't last. And so the only one I've ever found, and this comes back to my faith journeys where it started, the borrower slave to the lender, I can find nowhere in Scripture that debt was used to bless people. And so then i got to think, okay, do I believe that or do I believe my academic training? I've got a degree in finance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know how to run an IRR, you know, and I know what the IRR looks like without, with, with, uh, with debt and without debt. And it's not nearly as good unless you're leveraged. But you can run an IRR through the roof with leverage. Mm-hmm. Guess what's left out of the IRR calculation? There's no math inserted for risk. The IRR is agnostic to risk. It doesn't recognize it. And so while you see this great rate of return, there's zero risk showing up in there. The chance that you lose the thing or the chance that the stress brings on your life or what it does to your marriage or what it does to your body to carry around the weight of that. None of that is parlayed into there. And real estate is unique in that way because other investment vehicles teach us to mathematically insert risk. For instance, two mutual funds, you would never compare a, an aggressive growth stock mutual fund with a, with a growth in income, okay? And if you look at the chart, you know, the growth in income is kind of like this and the aggressive growth is like this, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the risk factor. And the highs and lows on that, you all probably know this is called, for our, but for our audience at home, the, the change, the rapid change is measured by a thing called a beta. And a beta is a statistical measure of risk. It's a math number. And so a beta of 1.0, for those at home, means that that particular mutual fund is exactly what the stock market is. It's S&P 500. It's doing what the stock market is doing. A beta of 2.0, it means it's twice as risky. So this is an aggressive growth emerging market type stock fund portfolio. And so it's twice as risky as the market. So you would the way you would adjust for risk between a beta of a 0.8, which might be like a growth in income, versus a beta of 2.0, is you insert the beta in an inverse in the math formula, and you adjust for risk. So you can compare these two apples to apples, even though after risk, a post-risk analysis we don't do that in real estate. No one ever talks about that in real estate. It doesn't even come up. And so if you, but we have kind of a brain and our brain says, "Oh, wait a minute. If I'm a 110% leverage in real estate, that's probably not good." You know? <laughs> Where would you say the risk is though, let's say on a 3% mortgage or an interest rate that's below inflation because from my perspective, it seems like there's less risk it is. in having cash in the bank than tied up in a property that might not be as easily accessible, that in the event of a job loss or something happens, you'll, you'll have cash that you could easily access versus in a property where it might be difficult to take out. Like if you need the money, mm-hmm. like something comes up um, and it exceeds your emergency fund, that maybe it's harder to tap into if that's your last case resort. Well, the, the difference is, are we talking about the shortest path to bankruptcy or the shortest path to wealth. This, what you're describing is not going to lead you to bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a nuanced argument sure. at that point. Okay. And so like, you know, uh, because we're not talking about a get rich quick, hundred percent 
you know, portfolio yeah. and you're just trying to use an inflationary number to offset your interest rates and that 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 doesn't play long okay. term. But you know, where you've got a high cash position, a high equity position, lower debt, well guess what? Your risk is so low that it's but the, 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 that the debt represents that your beta would not be a 2.0, yeah, sure. it would be a 0.25, yeah. you know? But there is still a risk. Mm-hmm. That is there. That is not there. If a house is 100% paid for, the property is 100% paid for, because then if your tenant doesn't pay because of pandemic, oh, and by the way, you can't evict them because of a moratorium on evictions, uh, and so you got zero cash coming in and nothing you can do about it. Or are they going to Chapter 13? Take six months to get them out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you got zero cash coming in and not squat you can do about it. Uh, and legally, I mean, you're gonna. You're going to get real criminal crap if you start messing with those things, right? Yeah. So you cannot. And so you're writing checks. I'm not. <laughs> and I'm sitting yeah. here smiling and going, okay, we got a big pile of cash, and we got all these buildings paid for, and we had entire segments of our revenue just evaporate with the quarantine. Like live events didn't exist, obviously, mm-hmm. right? That kind of stuff. And we're going – this ain't good because we're going to if this thing goes down into the red and we start burning that cash what's our burn rate and how long before we start leadership doesn't take pay and how long after that before we start having to furlough people or lay people off and we're we're running those calculations during that short period of time that we were off and uh but we did not have added to that the burn rate of the rent burning through the cash yeah uh or, or the how or the payment on the buildings I mean, can you imagine the payment on these buildings if I'd have been burning that cash during that? Holy crud. But, you know, so one less thing to worry about, right? But it's a risk analysis is what it is. And if you 100%, I run a 100% debt-free portfolio, and so I have zero pressure to, or virtually zero pressure, to make that property inordinately perform in a stressful situation. So I make different decisions about tenants. I don't need a tenant. Mm-hmm. And so I don't get as many bad ones because I'm willing to go, yeah, we'll sit here another month. If it takes another month to fill it, that's better than putting that bozo in there. He's going to change his Harley oil in the living room. I can feel it, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And so, but when, but I remember when I had payments on properties in my other life and I'd be going, I need, I got to make a dead gun payment. I need to get a tenant in here. And, you know, all of a sudden your little IRR thing you did when you bought the property and you ran your pro forma out on a, you know, you ran out the NOI and you run the whole thing out through there. All of a sudden you go, oh, that's out the window. You're just like, crap, I got to make the payment. And you forget thinking about that. And so you kind of have that same look. He had when he's talking about $7,000 a minute ago, you know, and it's, um, but I've been, Hey dude, I did it. I did it with millions. So you're not, you're not nearly as dumb as I am, but, uh, but yeah, that's where it comes from. So I, you know, the, uh, a hundred percent debt free works in prosperity. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it works in downtimes. The more debt you use, the more prosperity is required in the marketplace for you to succeed, to overcome the risk. That's all it is. And so I just decided I'm wounded. I'm not borrowing money, period. And Joe and Susie Consumer, you know, when I can get them 100% out of debt, their probability of walking into a million-dollar net worth increases dramatically, dramatically. Because they're not trying, you know, of all the 10,000 millionaires, we interviewed 10,167 millionaires in our largest study of millionaires ever done. Uh, precisely zero said, 
I became a millionaire because I borrowed all I could on my personal residence at 3%, and I parlayed that in the stock market, and it made me a millionaire. None of them said that. Zero. Z- that's bizarre. I mean, zero said that. Zero also said, you know, my airline miles that I got on my credit card, you know? You know. That's him. That's his guy. Yeah. So, I'm the opposite. I'm like, yeah, because I borrowed How money. many credit cards do you have? Probably 10. <laughs> what does but that you know make you feel but, but they're all paid off. They're all paid off. There's zero I, balance. I couldn't and resist I, messing with him. Was that mean? That was <laughs> no, mean. I love that it. Mean. That was I, mean when I, I was like, no, that was, <laughs> yeah. that was, you're going easy. Yeah. I look at the flights that it's I made. It's just because I love you, Graham. It's okay. because I love you, man. The hotels. We booked a whole trip to Hawaii uh, last year. All paid for. Yeah, because you couldn't afford it otherwise. Yeah. But it was free. It was a free trip. Yeah, it was That's free. the way I Except saw Except you it. spend 12 to 18% more when you use plastic on average. I don't, know, I don't think so. I, I am uh, so... I don't know. The behavior studies yeah. show that. So. I'm sure they do. I had to buy him his iced coffee this morning, Dave. He Did was struggling. You know, I brought a coffee from the Airbnb that I made there, and I still have it in a plastic cup because I knew that I just habitually make my own coffee. Yeah. My well, default you, is you don't spend money. You are frugal. Yeah, the default frugal. is always, I'm not going to spend. You're known for being have to. It, yeah. cheap. That's his frugal. Is it cheap, cheap or frugal? Cheap. No, it's, it's, it's <laughs> frugal. Right? I'm getting better. You are getting better. I'm, I'm very proud better. of you. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. I see we're running over a little bit on time, but uh, I don't want to hold this up. Thank you guys so much. Well, it's an honor to be with you guys. Really appreciate it. Love what you do. Love the podcast. You guys are amazing. Thank you for letting me be part of it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for agreeing to do this. Thank you, George, for setting this up. And we got another really exciting video planned right now. After this, so make sure to check out the main channel right now. It's worth it, and uh, I'll see you very shortly. Appreciate you guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, oh, I fun. Love this. See, I could have done this for another few that hours. Was great. You could see.